Hello, Billy here. How's the week been? Good? Bad? Meh? Well, hopefully it's about to get better as we're back with another episode of Even Baddies Wear Helmets. In this episode, we're going to be chatting about adaptation. Adaptation is everywhere on kids' telly, from Tracy Beaker to the Demon Headmaster. Behind nearly every great children's TV drama is a great children's book. I'm very lucky this week to be joined by Helen Blakeman. Helen was responsible for adapting Jacqueline Wilson's Hetty Feather for CBBC. Across six series, the BAFTA award-winning show has followed Hetty and her little brother as they grow up at the Foundling Hospital in Victorian London. A writer for stage and screen, Helen is also an international Emmy Award winner, chair of the BAFTA Children's Committee, co-founder of Heroic Books and a trustee of the Liverpool Everyman and Playhouse Theatres, which are very close to my heart. I was dead excited to hear about how Helen went bringing Hetty off the page and why it seems adaptation will always have a place on our children's screens. So if you're ready and you've got a brew and a biscuit, we'll get started. I have had my Weetabix and it's Monday morning, so, you know, this can only go well. Um, can we just, um, can we start off by having you introduce yourself and what it is you do? Because I, I sort of came to your work as a writer, but since sort of stalking you on Google a bit, I've, I've seen that you do all sorts of different things. So, um, yeah. Well, I am a writer. Um, I began my career working in theatre and my first play, Caravan, excuse me, was on at the Bush Theatre in London uh, many years ago now. It only feels like yesterday. And that was directed by Gemma Bodinay, who went on to become the artistic director of the Liverpool Everyman and Playhouse. And um, after that, I moved into TV. And my first TV writing debut was a TV film called Pleasureland that was on Channel 4 and it was really quite controversial. It was about teenage sexuality and they, Channel 4 uh, built a season around that which obviously pushed the film into prominence um, and and then from there you know my protagonists both in theatre and in um, TV have all been young and female and it was very soon after that that um, I was being sent some books to adapt. Uh, the first one of which I did after Pleasureland was Dust Thin Baby by Jacqueline Wilson. And that had a 14 year old protagonist at the heart of it. Um, and then from there, the next big project was Hetty Feather, which again had a female protagonist at the heart of it. So I moved from probably the upper end of, of young adult, probably you'd describe Pleasureland as youth and then Dustbin Baby as young adult and then into children's with Hetty. But what they've always carried is a female protagonist. It's nice that that's a kind of, yeah, that, that through line for your work that is, is very female centred and very sort of not... I don't know quite what the word is, but headstrong, um, yeah, articulate young women who, you know, are, are, are inspirational, I suppose. It's, yeah, it's fantastic. Yeah. And then, uh, well, I'm also the chair of the Children's BAFTA Committee, 
which I've done for a number of years now um, and I love doing that and we oversee um, the BAFTA Children's Awards but as well as that we do a lot of outreach work with BAFTA kids and I've been adapting a Michael Morpurgo book um, for Zlam in Paris who are an Oscar nominated um, animation company so I, I also have that to juggle. But it's fine to juggle as a writer. You need projects to juggle. Yeah, yeah. And this all, all of it, well, not all of it, but a lot of it in adaptation, which is um, obviously the focus of what we're going to be chatting about today. And it seems to me that there is, and correct me if I'm wrong, but the adaptation is a very big thing in children's television. Um, I mean, even like Jacqueline Wilson's work alone um, with Tracy Beaker, uh, The Dumping Ground, Dustbin Baby. Um it's it's everywhere. What is it about adaptation specifically that makes it so prominent for content for young audiences? Well, I think especially these days, I know for me, it's absolutely about the delivery of literature to children. So there is a huge loop there of encouraging them to read and to um, be drawn into imaginative and well-told stories. I think that... Uh, especially with concentration spans being essentially at an all-time low. It's it's a way in for children where they feel as though they may not have read the book, but they may have heard of the book. And mm-hmm. so it's a way for them, in my mind, to feel um, safe. They're not taking a risk, potentially, or not, greater, uh, not as great a risk as um, things are even it, it both in watching an an animation so that's from not an animation an adaptation from an audience point of view you know it's a brand and kids are savvy they know brands they know Jacqueline they know Michael Morpurgo they know David Williams when he does his event pieces and also the the stories that you get in literature have most often has such a beauty around them and in terms of broadcasters it's less of a risk mm. is that because there's like a ready-made audience there already yeah there's a ready-made audience and there is also a ready-made framework from which you you deviate because you have to because no adaptation will survive it is if it's a straight adaptation from the page to the screen so you do deviate and you do recreate. And that's the bit that I absolutely love entirely is is, is taking a book. And um, I the analogy that I use in adaptation is, for me, it's like opening up those, you know, those 3D picture books that you get as a child. And then those like worlds pop out and you can move things at the sides of the pages and everything. When I get a text that really speaks to me. In fact, I fail quite miserably in reading any form of literature if I can't see that there would be a potential to adapt it now. Interesting. It's work. And if it doesn't hook me in, there's no point me reading it. And, you know, and and if I get to that point, then I check the rights at the the very (laughs) beginning, to be honest. Um, but I see it. I see adaptation as opening up the text and seeing what lies beneath. What are the nuances between the lines? What 
is the outer world beyond these pages, beneath these pages, that we could recreate as an extended landscape and world that would be interesting to an audience. Um, and that goes not only from a narrative and character perspective, but also from a form and structure perspective too. That's fascinating. And I, I, I never considered that sort of the idea that the adaptation, the screen adaptation is, is a way into reading as well, that it's a way of getting kids to engage with literature as opposed to, because I suppose so much gets said about how, you know, the, the film isn't as good as the book, but the idea that a TV show or, or a film can be a way of, of just getting them to engage with story. And then maybe they will go and read it. Maybe they won't, but they will, that, that enchanted world that you talk about, that magic and that sense of life um, is really exciting. Um, so when it came to Hetty Feather, then that first series came out in 2015 and you'd adapted Jacqueline's work before um, with Dustbin Baby. Obviously, her work is is so popular um, and so well loved. I mean, I think about uh, my generation, especially growing up with with Tracy Beaker. Um, does that popularity create a pressure when you're adapting it or do you kind of just sort of zone in and go, I'm writing a story? Um, I, I've never thought about the pressure whatsoever at all because I'm so absorbed by the text um that how can I describe it with Jacqueline's work she can I feel be sometimes taken as a surface level writer mm. and she absolutely is not the nuance and the depth and the the, the hints that are in her work are so brilliant and there is so much underneath that and I see it as my job to tease up those moments um, for us to see them on screen. So there is the usual pressure of wanting to deliver something good and wanting to um, you know produce the best script that you can produce and all agree in including the broadcasters that this is something that they that they want you know before they green light it there's pressure there but there isn't for me pressure in uh, in in looking at Jacqueline's work or even Michael Morpurgo's work and thinking oh dear what if they don't like it and I think it's because I would be so subsumed by the text in the first instance that there is absolutely no way that I would deviate from the tone nor intention of the book. An adaptation can and will, as I said earlier, change many aspects of the text to make it um, interesting to an audience. If it's a series, to give it hooks. Uh, if it's a series, well, actually, no, not just if it's a series, but it, uh, gender balance. Um, for instance, Hetty was heavily female in the book. There are no boys in it, really. Mm. Uh, so I created the the boy characters and um, a male teacher um, and the adult characters as well for, for the series of Hetty. Um, only Matron Bottomley existed and she became an amalgamation of at least two matrons that were in the book. So you have to reinvent a lot but what you never do is deviate from the author's tone atmosphere nor intention in terms of its arc 
so it's not a case of oh I have to I have to get this right there's no sort of it's more of a, a a jumping off point and a and a capturing that essence as opposed to thinking like oh there's however many people who read Jacqueline Wilson all eyes are going to be on it it's just like you say honing in on that story and finding out what makes it exciting and special um and and, and with Hetty Feather then how did you come to be the person to adapt it was that were you approached for that uh, I was approached for that yes um I was approached by CBBC to take a look at uh, at the book um and they were interested in in adapting that for the stage uh, for the screen it was already being adapted at the time or just after that for the stage and that um was two became two separate projects entirely um so yeah they sent me the book and then um they originally wanted this is how much work goes into it. So I worked on Hetty for two, two and a half years before it came to screen. Um, so for, at first they wanted a straight adaptation of book one. And then I think there was a change of controller and so channel controller that is. Uh, and then there were three books in the series. So we, we then thought, oh, there would, would be an appetite for a straight adaptation of all three books but making it as a 13 parter and and I I did the treatment for for that I think I did the first script for the um straight adaptation of book one and then when we moved on to the 12 part series of all three books I then wrote as the 13th part I kind of brought it full circle and had Hetty return to the founding hospital and that became that just that one episode idea was an original take on on the essence of the books if you like and I think at that point there was a new channel controller and another one and um they said it was Cheryl Taylor and they were like she was said I like that I I really like that and I think that you know we can have a returnable returnable precinct show set in the Foundling Hospital, which is a show for, you know, children who either have or haven't read the books, um, for all genders, um, and which will engage parents too. And it has, it, it really did engage across the generations. There was a lot of um, uh, kind of grandma and auntie and family watching going on with Hetty which was terrific and it was it was a joy to bring it to to the screen it was a brilliant cast and a great production team and what we achieved I think on a a relatively small CBBC budget is what I look at and consider a really high quality period TV show and Mm -hmm. Hetty what Hetty did as well that was quite remarkable and wasn't sung about in the press because children's TV for some reason isn't um, somewhat like children's literature to a point where it's seen as being accepted and nodded to but not um, mm. always respected to the level that it ought to be and um, was that we introduced colorblind casting and we as far as I know we were the first period show to do that and um you know across like both children's and adults as far as I'm aware I hadn't seen anything before which was so 
essentially um, using colorblind casting. Not honestly, not that I'm aware of. Mm-hmm. Um, and so we, yeah, we pushed boundaries. I felt, and I think Victorian history is on the school curriculum, so that was another hook in for kids that they really enjoyed. There's so much to kind of, like you say, like it's not just an adaptation, it's also a period piece. And with that comes certain educational elements, but you never feel like you're being sort of educated while you're watching it. Do you know what I mean? It's not like in the sense of I'm being taught a lesson here, but I am investing in these characters and through through the experience of watching it, I'm I'm getting a sense of this period and, exactly. and the sort of challenges that they faced. Um, and how much then is Jacqueline or any novelist involved in that process of adaptation? I think it's very much dependent on the novelist, but from from my experience with Jacqueline, uh, Jacqueline is so busy writing her books that she is an exceptionally wise, wonderful and warm human being. She's an absolute delight. Uh, when I wrote Dustbin Baby and Jacqueline saw some of the early um, epi- uh, breakdowns, probably a treatment stage I was going to say episode breakdowns but it was just the single so she probably saw um my plan my treatment and she was happy with that and then she read the script towards the end and she had one note which was about um a location that we intended to use and I'd described the architectural pillars in one way and she said oh ham house is actually whatever pillars I can't remember but so it was there was one note that came back so it was like okay brilliant we're on steady incredibly free yeah Yeah. um and we didn't use ham house we used a different place and um and then when it was our screening of that in London and Jacqueline um got up on stage and she said this is the most brilliant adaptation of my work ever and she still says that today and it still makes her cry and so yeah and so when it came to Hetty she was exceptionally trusting because we'd worked together before she knew my intention she would read for every series the um, episode breakdowns and give comments on them but she actually was very free because Jacqueline understands what it takes and that it's a, a, a different skill set to bring um, a, a book to the screen especially if it's going to be a, a long runner like Hetty and with Michael Morpurgo it's been the same um, we've had uh, an email exchange and that's been about it really so yeah. you, there's not kind of a process of like you said building that that relationship and that trust to sort of make them feel comfortable that you're not going to go and sort of, I don't know, hack loads away or change massive things? Or, or is that just a process of of discussion and conversation about this is, we're, we're doing something different here. It's not a novel yeah. anymore. It's going and, and that is always, that, that initial conversation is brokered by the production company or the broadcaster um, in the first instance. So, you know, they they've optioned the book therefore they've had a conversation with uh, Jacqueline's agent therefore they know that it's in good and reputable hands practically once you've once you've got that text and once you've you've built that trust 
where do you start with the adaptation process? I think I read somewhere or heard, and I might be completely making this up, that um, I think Simon Stevens said when he was adapting Curious Instant of the Dog in the Nighttime for stage, he went through the novel and took out all of the dialogue um, and got rid of everything else. So he just had the the spoken section so that he knew it would be actively dramatic. How do you do you have any kind of practical sort of ways into adapting a novel once you've once you've read it, or does it very much differ? depending on what that book is? Um, I mean, I can absolutely see in what you've said about uh, Simon, how you would do that for stage. So when I did mm-hmm. um, Mallory Blackman's um, cloud busting for stage, that was primarily spoken word because it was a, a poem. It's, an, it's a novel that's in poem form. Um, so for, for stage, absolutely, yes. For, for TV or film, um, I, read, I read the novel uh, I then notate the novel. So I go through and I make notes. I type them up of everything that is in the novel, chapter by chapter. It takes ages. Um, so that I have... It's not that I often refer back to those notes, but it's kind of like revising for an exam. So that, you know, I'll, I'll have read it a couple of times and I'll have made very slight notes but most notes at that stage are in my head and then I go through it and I write everything out again um because then I feel as though the novel is not only in my head but it's kind of come out through my hands onto a keyboard or a notepad so so then I feel as though it's it's right through me and and I've I've really taken it on and then from there I can I feel as though I can open things up and and write about specific characters or move things around or then I get a real sense of the form of of the the actual structure of the novel and how that structure may not be suitable for screen or certainly not for um, an episodic retelling of the story and I get an innate sense of what needs to be where or which characters need developing or you start to see the voids in there, for instance, in Dustbin Baby, um, Marion's character that was played by Juliet Stevenson, she didn't have another adult in the novel to speak to. There was no other adult character that she engaged with and she has to talk to somebody. So I invented the character of Elliot, who she works with. It's really fascinating that kind of, when I think about adapting a novel, I've never done it myself, but um, I tend to think about kind of stripping back because I think of it as a very sort of dense prose form but the idea that you're actually getting it getting the bones of it inside you getting really sort of making sure you know it inside out and then filling in gaps is is something that I never considered before and that's really that's really interesting yeah you kind of fill in the gaps that that an audience will need to see because they you know reading a book you don't need to see certain elements or you don't need to there may not be a need for um, a thematic element to be really front and center but you you need to have those details flowing right through the series and mm. right now I'm thinking specifically of the of Lucy Lost which is taken from Listen to the Moon by Michael Mulpergo we, we've changed the title for the animation um and with that there are there is a, a real need to drill down into um a thematic arc if you like of um mistrust of strangers 
and and because it's animation we do that in lots of nice different ways so while there may be a nod to that in the book and if you were to to really study the book you may find that but it's my job to really run with that not push it front and center but you know in a way with Hetty you know she is what drove that series is that she's a she's a modern girl trapped in a Victorian world and she rails against whoever she can and she doesn't always do it correctly yeah (laughs) it sometimes goes wrong absolutely and you have that and then within each episode there is a mini retelling of that story this is something I wanted to pick up on actually is that I think especially in in that final series we see her go back and compile her story and it's it's a show like as a show it very directly considers like the nature of storytelling and what it means to to have your own voice and to sit down and to explain what happened to you um and and there is a moment in in that final series where she gets told that her her story might be too sad to share um and I wondered you know like a lot of Jacqueline Wilson's books it doesn't really shy away from some quite dark themes and ideas and, and events how did you go about balancing that light and shade in in your adaptation well for CBBC there is um Edpole, so we always have to adhere to um, BBC policy in terms of light and shade. So, in telling a Victorian story and in the content, you know, taking the content of of the book, you know that the children were caned, uh, they were locked away. We can't show that. Um, mm. If a child, if a character is locked away, it won't be for very long at all. Um, it has to be shown that it's not too traumatic. We couldn't show caning. We could show an intention and a reaction. Um, and rightly so, there are these r- rules. Um, it has to have fun. Um, there has to be camaraderie. It has to be about friendship. Um, if a character does something that could be deemed negative to another character, you know, they have to have their comeuppance. You can't have um, uh, imitative behaviour within the episode. Um, so there are a lot of rules, but saying that, those rules are, you know, you're writing kids' TV, and although I never really think of Hetty when I write it as I'm writing this for kids' TV, I write for the characters and of the characters primarily. Um Obviously, you know what you can and can't show. It, it's it's sensible, but there is a freedom that we, we don't we don't self censor in the first instance. Um, there is a freedom to the process, um, and then we check and then we revise. And by that point, there are small revisions because, as I said, it's a sensible. You innately know what you can and can't show. Um, But, you know, we we want children to watch it and we want them to enjoy it and we want them to root for the characters and we want them to love to hate Matron Bottomley and uh, Lady Grenford. And, you know, it's those it's that character and that story that that you run with. And as long as you get in that right and that you're loving the characters as a writer and enjoying writing for them, then the rest kind of delivers and yeah, I like I like that it's it's not it's not a case of working 
like there are those certain sort of guidelines and rules and like you say they're they're very common sense things but that's sort of secondary to just telling a great story and, and telling like creating conflicts that that young audiences are really going to invest in and care about and those darker themes are there because that that's what life was like but also the the friendships are what really really shine through and the moments of fun um and as I'm I'm really um interested in the fact that across six series we see both Hetty and um Isabel Clifton who who plays her grow up um and I wondered what what's it like to write for somebody during those sort of key teenage years and to like did your approach change at all um Hetty grew up so there was that again was innate I mean I first met um Isabel when she was 11 and we auditioned 450 kids for that role and um whittled it down whittled it down and so Isabel came she she was she'd never done any tv before she'd done some shows at her you know Saturday dance and drama school um and she was fresh and lovely as was her family and so it became a joy to write for the character and it became a joy to write as the other characters around her as well, as they all began to flourish. And it was brilliant because we had honestly the best summers. So we would film in Kent in glorious sunshine, in the most beautiful surroundings every summer. And those kids grew up together from the age of 11 to, my gosh, you know, 17, you know, as as the cast changed within themselves, um, the characters did too. And it was it was really funny because, you know, you'd start, I remember the first series, and you'd get, you know, kids of different sizes in terms of their height. And then you'd come back the next year and you'd be like, oh, my God, they were the tallest <laughs> last year and now they're the smallest. How did that happen? And then, you know, the boys, suddenly their voices would drop. And it, it but it was so organic and it felt so right. I suppose on the other side as well, there's the, the audience who, you know, started watching it in like that series one and then have have also grown up with it there's a really kind of I don't know it might be an obvious thing to say but to do with identifying with those characters and and growing up alongside them absolutely um, and we did really well in in up for audience share um on iPlayer we did I mean we were used to be in the top every episode made it into the entire BBC iPlayer top 10 weekly and usually went into the top three or five which means that it's huge. And we then realised that a lot, we used to pick up quite a lot of audience share from um, over 18s at weekends. And I was like, I think that's Hangover TV. (laughs) It's, it's, you know, people who've read it as a a child and, you know, maybe they're at university and feeling a bit rough on a Sunday morning. It's like, oh yeah, I'll I'll watch Hetty. That's so lovely. That's really nice to think. You mentioned briefly uh, earlier as well. We'll just move away from from Hetty for a bit, but um, that you're so it was you got development funding from the Liverpool Film Office. So you're currently adapting the Girl Who Stole an Elephant by Nizrana Farouk to an animation series. Yeah. Um, 
Can you tell us a little bit about where you're at with that project and also does how much does your process of adaptation differ when you're working in animation? Are you thinking much more visually, taking into account the illustrations in the book? How does it kind of shift? Um, it doesn't, for me as a writer, it doesn't shift whatsoever because you're still telling the story. You're still um, using all of those tools and thoughts that I've mentioned uh, earlier. It allows you a certain um, freedom in terms of, visualization and imagination um it allows you a greater freedom obviously to um have talking animals you know you can anthropomorphize animals and therefore that's fun um and it also you know we're, we're kind of back to budget in a, in a way as well because the girl who stole an elephant is set on a fictionalized ancient island, which is based on Sri Lanka. Um, and the old adage of never work with children or animals <laughs> on a tropical island during a global pand- pandemic. It's, it's not going to happen in live action. It is know. tricky. <laughs> so, um, so, so those, so there is a freedom that's allowed there. And also, you know, working with Nisrana and working with um, Nimi Haraskama as a story consultant, um, that has given a, a great value and authenticity and integrity to the project, which we intend to continue. And it's our intention to use writers from uh, Sri Lanka and the wider region. So, that also is a, a brilliant engagement. It was for that reason that my interest was piqued. And also because Chaya, who's the protagonist, um, has all of those brilliant um, elements to her that Hetty has. Mm. You know, she's fearless. So it was that that I was drawn to as well. So the, the big global players are currently reading that, which is very exciting. It sounds amazing. I very much, it feels like you say, like that, that common sort of thread that's run through all your work, those, those young girls and women who are, who are so driven and outspoken and curious and adventurous. Um, I'm really excited to see that. Yeah. And change makers, you know, change makers um, within their own world. So, so, so there may be tonal differences, but thematically they are still females who are um pushing for change be it in an antagonistic um way with the you know being front and center about it or having their own quiet agency mm-hmm. that we may not initially recognize yeah being brave doesn't always have to be being loud or being absolutely loud. yeah it's, it's that and that's something that i think it's really exciting to identify with as, as a young girl as well. There's lots of different ways to be a change maker and to be a leader. I also feel we should I mention at some point that I want to hear about your um, your work with BAFTA Children's a little bit more. Just can you tell me about what that actually entails? I feel like I'm going to yes, squeeze it in at the end just to, just to hear it because it feels like a big thing. I'm really <laughs> glad that you've said about that because um, for the most part, we do oversee the awards. So that means that we ensure that the categories that we have within the ceremony 
um, are reflective of what is happening within the industry. Um, we, 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 alongside the BAFTA staff, um, organise that. And it's a brilliant group of high profile um, children's TV, film, game, animation, um, freelancers and execs from all of the main broadcasters and, and platforms. Children's TV and content, um, and let's call it content, children's content is always at the forefront of change. And so BAFTA are very much aware that we have to push for that change. Um, and for instance, last year, our special award went to Nikki Lilly. And I don't know whether you know Nikki, Nikki but she, she yes, won yeah. Junior Bake Off. And she's a, an absolute brilliant role model who's really put herself out there in terms of content and speaking out for difference. So we did, you know, we awarded Nikki, but we have the most brilliant partners such as Place to Be. And earlier when I was speaking about Hetty and Victorian history being on the school's curriculum, I'm just going to share a little story which for me encompasses the reasons why I uh, am involved in BAFTA, children's BAFTA and BAFTA kids. I went to a school in Salford um, as part of our mental health self-esteem workshops. And so we have those, we have guests on those workshops. Like we had um, Deshaun, who plays Gideon, myself, but there will also be Katie Thistleton or Ben Shires from CBBC or Lindsay Russell from Blue Peter, who go along uh, to facilitate the workshop for the day. And it's always fun. And I remember being asked to floss in front of an entire school and really <laughs> stupid stuff like that, which is great. And then a teacher said, what's not on your agenda today, on your schedule today, is that we have a, a, a centre here for children with um, uh, special needs and learning difficulties. There are only six children in the centre, but they've been watching Hetty and they love it. Would you speak to them? And we we're like, of course. And we went in and the, these children were the most delightful kids. And we had what they didn't know about Hetty, right, was incredible. And there were some things that they were saying to me and I was like, um, I'll have to try and remember them. Was that series three? And they were like, oh, yeah, series three, episode seven, blah, 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 blah. Um, what had happened was that because they were doing Victorian history, the teacher had played them a 10 minute excerpt from the very first series of Hetty. And these kids could only watch um, content in 10 minute bursts. And they'd watch the entire series right up until the episode that had been on the night before. They were bang up to date and they'd watch 10 minutes every single day. And they knew it all. They absolutely knew every detail. They were excited by it. They got the nuances of it. They they thought it was wonderful. And then at the end of the session, and they were brilliant kids. And at the end of the session, the teacher said privately to us, you have no idea be what that has just done, because that little boy doesn't usually sit in his chair. He can't go to assembly because he, he won't sit down. And he'd sat down and engaged with adults that he'd never met before for, I think it was an hour and a half. And there was one little girl who 
she said she doesn't normally speak ever at all and she talked and she made points and it was and I'm not saying that it's because of Hetty or because of my work but what it did for those children was that it gave them a chance to discuss and be listened to and heard by mm. people that they admired they don't get a chance to to talk to creatives you know they go to school they get taught they go home um mm. it just gave them a feeling of being really heard and really quite special I think um and that's what the excitement of these place to be sessions brings them but and to the schools um but it 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 taps into the kids' creativity and, you know, each person who goes guest-wise talks, you know, about their own insecurities or what they thought they wanted to do as a job, how they got into this, how it's possible. To yeah, making it seem yes, accessible. Absolutely. Yeah. And for me, that is the reason why I'm involved with um, Children's BAFTA. And as well as really putting the creative industry, the children's creative industry, um, have that celebrated and acknowledged because we're very, very lucky in the UK to have such a highly regarded and flourishing children's content industry that is, you know, that is delivered so well. Brilliant. That's that's a really nice a nice point to to kind of end on. Um, thank you so much. Before we before we do, can I ask one last very quick question? Of course. Um, which is, you have made so much brilliant content for young people. Um, what was your favourite show as a kid on telly? Oh my goodness, that's a <laughs> that's a really difficult one because when I was growing up, I'm not sure that there were there used to be like strange dramas on the Sunday afternoon that were kind of YA um there used to be a crazy European series like a storytelling series and I can't remember the name of it but for the most part I I can't honestly remember apart from films um that there was a lot of drama on TV then because you know children's TV you know when I was growing up was what 45 minutes to an hour and a half after school that was it and there was Cracker Jack which I was on aged 11 and won it and I've got a pen <laughs> oh amazing yeah that was my first foray into kids tv was aged 11 um so actually there wasn't a drama that influenced me Billy but there were books that's there interesting books that's that I would see within my mind and there were scrapbooks that I created that um that I would make lists and invent stories and cut pages out of my mum's catalogue and make interiors what I was actually doing was creating a world and creating an ongoing um narrative so that like little bug for adaptation and for for taking those stories and, and making them not just on the page, but something that lived and breathed and was and was visual was was there from a young age. That's that's wicked. That's so cool. Um, well, thank you so much, Helen, for for chatting to me. I really appreciate it. It's been really interesting. Um, and I, I wish you all the best with everything. And to you, Billy. And I look forward to uh, to listening back and chatting again. 
You have been listening to Even Baddies Wear Helmets. The podcast was hosted by me, Billy Collins, produced by Cloda Chapman, with music from Finley Stafford, and our lovely logo was designed by Lucy Tiller. If you enjoyed the podcast, you can find us on social media at Even Baddies Pod on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. Make sure you subscribe, share, tell your mates. Thank you so much for listening, and we'll see you soon.